Product Camp Columbus is a monthly event to discuss all things product. Product experts discuss their methodologies, insights, and experiences in building great products. Product Camp Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies, and Rev1 Ventures. Visit productcampcolumbus.com for info on upcoming events. Now, onto this month's event podcast. So this is uh, something we call Product Camp, um, which is, um, I saw this thing that, that was happening in, in some cities across the, the world, really, called Product Camp, and, and you're supposed to do a one-day unconference to talk about product. So I thought, okay, sounds interesting, I'd, I'd like to do that in Columbus, but then it struck me, why just do a one-day conference thing? Why not get together once a month and sort of talk about product and have people that are doing product presumably well come and share their experience um, and how they approach product at their place. So that's what we've been doing. So we've got three people from the Klarna product team here to talk about how they approach product over there. They're going to go through a presentation, talk to you about the company and the product, and then we'll do a Q&A. Uh, we'll open it up so everybody can ask questions of, of the team as well. Those mics should be on. Do you guys want to sort of go down the line and introduce yourselves and talk about your, your roles and contributions to the product team over there? I'm uh, Jeff Negrelli, user experience designer at Klarna. Um, I do a lot with uh, pre-sales, uh, kind of work across teams with marketing and solutions for doing actually uh, integrations with the product. Hello, I'm Melissa. I'm a product manager at Klarna. I manage, um, so my role is not only US focused, but also global focused for the Klarna product lines, and I manage the implementation of the Klarna products in um, e-commerce platforms. Hi, I'm Rachel First. I'm a product manager at Klarna. Um, I sort of interface with the US market and our team in Stockholm. So just for some background, uh, I would say 80% of the people at our company are in Stockholm. Most of the engineers are there, so it's important to have someone from product in the local markets that can help guide the engineers in Stockholm for what to do, so I do that. And I'm working mainly on some of the credit products that we'll be launching within the next year in the US. So I'm Ryan Frederick. I'm a partner at a software development team uh, company in town called uh, AWH. Um, thank you, Rev1, for letting us come and, and do this once a month at, uh, at your shop. You guys have a presentation Do you want to sort of go through to talk about Claren introduce people to the company and to the product. Do you want to fire away and yeah. do that? So yeah, so basically what's happening here, <laughs> I've seen the video, I'll just walk you through it if we can't get the sound working. So this guy's checking out at the store and it's an online checkout in real life. So he goes to check out, he's buying some bread and the guy says, okay, well what's your email address so we can find you? And he says, um, you know, bobjones at gmail.com. No, sorry, sir, that's not it. Um, bobjones28 at yahoo.com. No, sorry, sir, we can't find you. And then sort of hushed under his breath, he's like, crazy Bob, uh, 69 at, you know, AOL.com. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. Great. We found you. So he's going through this whole thing. I am, so, I am so glad you said that and I didn't. I know. But, you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of the story, right? So he has to find some, like, kind of embarrassing email. He's talking. And then, okay, how do you want this? you know, bread delivered to you is like just regular bread delivery, you know, and then he goes to pay. Sorry, sir, we don't accept that form of payment. 
So he has to basically go through, and then he finally gets through the whole thing, and he says, oh, sorry, timed out. And then the guy kind of goes to sleep, and he goes, hi, how may I help you? Can I have your email? So then he has to go through the whole thing again. <laughs> and then basically he finally checks out, and the guy says, okay, he puts the bread to the side. Well, and when am I going to get the bread? Oh, do you want next day delivery? That's going to be, you know, $10. And the guy just walks away and says, you know what, forget it. So he abandons the checkout because there's so much friction and it's so hard to get through the checkout. So at the core, that's what we're trying to solve at Klarna is how do we get people through a checkout online and make it easy. So there's a couple of things that we do. We have a core product that's called Klarna Checkout. And it's basically a way that we take over the checkout experience. We use the minimal fields that, are, that you need to get through it. And uh, we also leverage cookies to remember you, so it's a really easy second time experience when you come back. And part of the core of what we're trying to do too is offer you the payment methods that you want in every market. So uh, we're here in the US now. So we've been in Stockholm for, we started 10 years ago in Stockholm. They expanded pretty rapidly to other markets in Europe. And something with the European payment space is it's highly fractured. There's a lot of different payment preferences in a lot of different countries. There's also some countries that don't mind credit, some countries that really don't like it. So Germany is an example. I think they only have like 20% of the population has a credit card. So they use direct debit, they use cash. Um, invoice is a really common payment method where you buy your goods, you get an invoice, and then you sort of pay for it later any way you want. So for 10 years, uh, Klarna has sort of been operating in the European space trying to solve this problem. And now we're launched in the U.S. And we have here, these are all U.S. merchants that we have live now in the U.S. with our Klarna Checkout product. So um, the big one that we launched with in the U.S. was Overstock. They've been a great partner for us. They're one of the largest e-retailers. And it's been a really great experience uh, learning how to adapt our products to the U.S. market. So some trends influencing our vision. Basically, we want to be mobile. So the core of everything that we do at Klarna is mobile. We design for the mobile payment experience. We know it's really hard to check out on your phone. We know it's, you know, it's something that people do is they browse on their phone and then they buy on their desktop. So we really want to be mobile focused and make it as easy as possible. Uh, global. So something that we do at Klarna is we don't build things for just one market. We try to bring requirements back from all of the markets. Do you know how many markets are in, Melissa? So right now we are in, so we have four core markets, and, but within the markets themselves, there's multiple countries. So like the Nordics encompasses four countries, Stock encompasses three countries, the UK and the US. Right, so we try to build um, as much as we can one single platform, so that way when we have multinational merchants, they can just go live in all of the markets, they only have to do one integration. Personalized, so we want you to go to the checkout and have what you want. So what's your preferred payment method? Have you shopped with us before? Do you have a stored card? Uh, if you have a stored card, you'll get it on any site that has Klarna. If you have your ACH hooked up, you can pay with that on any site that has Klarna. We'll even you know, order things based on your preferences, so when you come, it's we remember you and we remember what your, what your preferences are. And marketplaces connecting manufacturers with consumers. So something that we've been pretty active in at Klarna is trying to get into marketplaces. We kind of view it as an extension of our overall philosophy of getting the right thing to the customer and reducing friction. So these marketplace sites are really great because they consolidate a lot of merchants and just allow you one payment experience. So one of the ones that we're live on now is List.
In the U.S. In the U.S. Yeah, they, they have several in the Nordics. There are several marketplace uh, merchants in the Nordics, but here in the U.S. we have List as our first. And uh, brand to consumer, so that's a big push in e-commerce right now is selling directly to the consumer from the brands. Um, and that's something that we're actively engaged in in helping individual brands sort of uh, especially in Europe, leverage our network effect so they can automatically have personalized preferences and things that customers want. So they feel like they're getting a personalized experience even though you're shopping at all these different brands. So the vision is a local and personalized buying experience everywhere. So for a consumer, the same buying experience everywhere throughout the world. So if you are a German customer and you're shopping on a German version of Nike, for example, like you will get the German experience, it will have your local currency, it will have your language preferences there, and you'll see that everywhere. And then for the merchant, a single API that powers merchants to monetize products globally. So even if you operate in 18 countries, you just do one integration and you get our experience on all of your sites globally. So where are we now in the US? So in the US we have Checkout, one global API, and we have MyKlarna and Pay with One Click. We have a servicing portal. So one of the products we have is Invoice. Um, it's really big in Europe. We call it Pay After Delivery here in the US. So we have a portal that you can go to, manage your invoices, manage your preferences. And that's kind of part of the servicing side of things and Klarna's direct engagement with the customer. Sort of the stuff on the left is more uh, interfacing with the merchants. And then better financing tools. So this is something that we're building now and this is what I'm working on. So how can we offer you sort of installment style options in checkout? How can we offer you same as cash options in checkout? So those are the things that we're working on building now is besides just paying with credit card, paying with ACH, some basic preferences like that, how can we offer you for this particular product um, what you need in order to make the purchase? So we have a video of how checkout works. Yeah. Are we set up for video? Yeah, this one works. Hopefully I won't have to like... There's no, there's no sound. There's no sound here. So this is uh, our checkout product on shoes.com. Right now it's just shoes.com and I'll point out where we kick in. So here's, here's Klarna. It's embedded into the merchant site. And there you go, that's it. So in this example, we had seen the customer before and- It was a returning customer. Returning customer, they just hit the button and they were done. And then this is a video that, so this is, this is for the London, uh, the UK sort of launch. We have very similar products. We're on the same platform. So this is an example side by side of the financing tools. So this is something that we're launching with in like two weeks in the UK for um, the Arcadia group, which is like Top Shop, Top Man. So it's some big brands in the UK. And it just shows you point of sale financing what we've done and how we've streamlined it and try to make it as frictionless as possible and sort of what is standard in the market. So on the left is us, and then on the right is sort of a standard offering in the UK. Now, did you, is this really a fair test or did you just have somebody that could type faster <laughs> through the Clarin experience than the non-Clarin experience? Oh, you'll see oh, once you'll we see, get yeah. to what the application looks like. So here's the application on the right. like. It's not mobile optimized. It's, I mean, you don't even know where the fields are. We have two fields on the left, and that's all you need to apply. So we do a lot of data integrations on the back end to identify you and to get a lot of the information that they're requesting the user to put in in the user experience. 
scroll to the bottom, and you're done. And the person on the right is still filling in their marital status, the number of dependents, if they're British, their homeowner status, income, everything about them. So I think that's good on the video. But we're doing the same thing in the US. So we'll be offering point of sale financing probably by the end of the year. We're kind of wrapping up the work on it. We can talk more about that if you have questions on how we're building it. But just looking to basically streamline the process and find easier ways to get customers the financing that they want. In your research, what price, what product price point does the financing tool make the most sense at? What threshold does a product have to cross for that to make sense? Yeah, I think the 300 and up range is kind of where it really makes sense, where you'd start to see some lift in that. And I think some of it is more dependent on the type of product and also the time of year. So, I mean, a lot of the research we did said people would love to take $300 purchases around Christmas time and just sort of finance all of them so they could pay it off over longer because there's a high velocity of purchases during that time. Um, I think probably in the 800 up range is where it depends on the type of product you offer. So same as cash is really great for higher ticket items. And then depending on the brand, right, like it might be... Uh, you know, back to school shopping or dorm shopping where you might not have, it just depends on the age of the person who's shopping as well and the type of, I don't know if they're like, the type of credit score that they have, thin file, no file, that type of thing. So, but definitely 300 and up is where you start seeing some lift. So then uh, I guess we can just pause here and see if anyone has questions specifically on Klarna and what we do. And then uh, we just have a couple more slides around how we do product, yeah. So what happens then is they would get an email from us that says, hey, welcome to Klarna, you now have an account with us. And this is actually an open-ended line of credit. So even though they just applied for this one purchase, they do get a credit line and they can come back and with one click just apply that for other purchases. Um, so they get an email from us, hey, welcome to Klarna. The shoes get shipped and then once the once the shoes basically get captured, then that's when it gets added to the customer's bill. And then we tell them when they have to pay. And then they go to our payment portal and they can apply their payment. In the UK, the product that they're launching with is unique. It's not something we could do in the US for regulatory reasons, but it's basically just pay in 90 days. So for them, they just basically say, okay, I got the shoes and I have 90 days and that's when my first bill comes. Have you had much difference in terms of the <laughs> yes, there's very different data privacy um, requirements across the markets. Again, Germany is one of the strictest requirements. So that's something that in my role, I have to really take into consideration around how we're sharing a consumer's data with the platform that the merchants integrate it with and at what point in time we can share that information um, with the merchant themselves. So that's definitely something every market's different and we have to take that into consideration when we do the integrations with every market. When someone gets a line of credit, are they getting a line of credit with a particular vendor like shoes.com or are they getting a line of credit if, you're, if, if they also go on list, for instance? Yeah, they get a line of credit with Klarna to use at any merchant. Um, that we're integrated with. Okay. All right. Let's talk about how you guys approach all right, product. So how do we how do we make this all happen? 
Okay, so we we are pretty big. The product organization, I mean, like 60 product managers, and we have, I think, eight different sort of divisions that we have with heads of product. And then that all rolls into, we have a chief product officer at Klarna. And we have one of those divisions is international product, which means anything outside of, I guess, I guess it's all the individual markets. Yeah. Yeah, so the Nordics are in there. The UK is in there, the US is in there, DOC, so everyone's there. So one of the one of the stakeholders that's at the top is sort of international, what are the market needs? So quarterly and more frequently, I mean, the leaders in all of the groups meet and we basically go through, we have a global backlog. So we have opportunities. So any idea that anybody has, you know, that they want to build a business case on, they want to present is basically an opportunity. And we have tons of opportunities. Some never move anywhere. Some just kind of sit there. But we look at them and there's basically a decision that's made. Okay, we need a sponsor. So the opportunity starts with using some resources, fleshing it out, making a business case. But there has to be some sponsor who says as a business, we want to take this and do something with it. And then you do discovery work. So no work really gets done on it until people want to discover if that opportunity is good. So the discovery involves product, it involves engineering. People start thinking about, okay, what are the technical implications? How do we implement this? How does this impact other products that we have? And then a decision's made sort of at the end of discovery, like, okay, this is great, let's deliver it. If not, not to invest in delivery. So we really try to limit a certain percentage of the engineering time spent on the discovery work and really be able to focus on delivery. So this is sort of over the past year, we've really implemented this process as we've grown and we're sort of across more markets. And this is kind of where we are now and how we manage our global process. And then... Does a sponsor have to be... Can someone within product be a sponsor or does a sponsor have to be within the line of business or a customer? It can really be from any part of the business. Yeah. Yeah, so the sponsor for the credit initiatives was the CFO of the company. So he was the one that was really interested in that. And then we have sort of our top five priorities that are in discovery, so are in delivery, and we sort of try to really every month we have an all hands with the entire company and they talk about like these are the top five things that are in delivery, so everybody across the whole business is aware of them. And then we also have an OKR process, which is sort of tied to what's in delivery, but it could just be increase profitability in this market, grow the number of merchants by this amount, grow the number of transactions. So hopefully what's in delivery is tied to those OKRs, but then every single product team has to make their own goals that are tied to the corporate OKRs. So trying to sort of decentralize and have the teams be self-governing, but tying back to just some sort of key overall corporate measures. Yeah. And what do the product teams look like? How many people are typically on a team and are they multidisciplinary? And in, in they have development, yeah. design, engineering, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera? Yeah, so we have different product teams. So um, the overall platform... M- Melissa got really uncomfortable with that question, by the way. She <laughs> no. was like, oh, brother. Oh, 
she just knows it better than yeah. me. <laughs> so we have, so our, our architecture is sort of a microservices architecture. So I'd say each service, like the service that sends the emails or the service that calculates all the interest rates and calculates the Dunning chain and what late fees people owe, those are all individual teams. And those teams are organized with engineers dedicated to those teams and usually one product manager. If the team's bigger, they'll be split into sort of subdomains on that team. So maybe the US market and the UK market and the Nordic market and have a PM for each team. So when it comes to a lot of the microservices work that really have dedicated engineers, there's a product manager tied to that. The teams that are design focused have a designer that's tagged to that team. So we have a team that is, does the front end work for the checkout. They have their own dedicated designer. And there's three product managers with three dedicated engineering teams under them. And the designers sort of shared between all three doing some of the design work. We also have, I would say, another side of the product organization which doesn't have engineers. And that's sort of where I sit, where it's more commercially focused products. So offering credit involves all of the teams but the people who are sort of not tied to the engineering teams are more focused on gathering the business requirements and coordinating the work among all the teams to get something to market. And then we also have a delivery lead kind of organization, which is technical project management. And those are usually people with an engineering background who are tied on big initiatives like credit um, to help manage all the engineering work. So I'm kind of on the product side, managing the requirements along everyone, and then we have someone on, who's a technical lead who manages like the engineering work and making sure things are getting done. Who has ultimate r responsibility for the product and ownership of the product? Is that the product manager? Yeah, so I'd say on the, mic like on the small services side, it's definitely the product manager. When it comes to like credit, it's a little bit dispersed, so I would say, depending on what breaks, <laughs> depends on who gets blamed, right? Is it a legal issue? Was it an issue with requirements? Um, always just blame it on legal. I mean, that's just yeah, the fallback yeah, position, Yeah, exactly, right? and they know that, so they're prepared for that. Yeah, so I'd say it's a, little, it's a little dispersed, the ownership, and I think a lot of that is because we are a Swedish company. Mm -hmm. um, so they actually, they're very much into sort of consensus-driven decision-making, so a lot of a lot of the way decisions get made is really through consensus, and there isn't a lot of sort of single point of ownership on some of this, which is a challenge that we deal with sometimes. It's different. How, how often are you communicating and working with non-US team members around product, both from a business perspective and an actual software product perspective? Daily, hourly. 80% 80, yeah, 80% <laughs> of my day, I'm just on the phone with people in yeah. Sweden, UK. We have an engineering office in Israel. So I'd say most of, most of the time when it actually is getting, getting things done is, mm -hmm. is doing that, going over there a lot. Yeah, I would say my morning, like if anybody ever wants to get a hold of me in the morning, don't plan on it because it's just packed with meetings while they're at work and awake. And then my afternoons are usually when I get stuff done. So. And how do you guys communicate? What, what tools, processes, things are you doing to communicate effectively and efficiently? Because that's, that's a challenge virtually across all product organizations, right? Is how do we get everybody on the same, same page? How are we communicating effectively so that we don't have gaps in knowledge, right, and gaps in communication? Yeah, so we use, you know, we use Hangouts and chat very heavily, um, Slack, Jira, uh, you know, all those tools that help us communicate and make sure we're just keeping in, in constant contact with the, um, the resources that we're working with and ensuring that we're aligning and, 
and making sure that we all understand what's going on. I mean, as with any organization, there's always breakdowns in communication. And then probably one of the biggest challenges across, um, you know, driving it across all the markets. So it's something we do struggle with, but something we do also try to utilize the tools that we have and, and leverage the tools that we have to ensure that we're communicating effectively. Just try not to send emails, like figure out any other tool yeah. to use besides email, basically. <laughs> Depends on the team. Every team sort of manages which tools that they want to use. Mm -hmm. I think we probably have a license to like every single communication tool you'd want under the sun. So wherever someone's listening that's not in an inbox. I don't think I've ever put, heard it put that way. <laughs> wherever someone is listening, that's how we're, that's how we're communicating. Yeah. yeah. As you think about, do you treat all products the same? Because you have APIs, right? And then you have the checkout. So do you approach all products with the same methodologies and in the same processes in the same ways? Or are they all different and, and all of the, could all of the teams be approaching something very differently? I would say the high level process of how we approach um, product development is the same, which we reviewed the discovery or the opportunity discovery delivery. But within the delivery phase and the discovery phase, how the details are working out is really up to the individual teams of how they manage that and how they're working that. Um, we are a very agile shop. Things change very quickly. Things move very quickly in Klarna. So uh, there's no like defined structure and every, so every engineering team and, and, and that, that the alignment there is very different in how they work and how they're structured and, and how they get their work done. So you know, just kind of understanding that and knowing the teams that you interface with a lot and how they work and how to best interact with them is really important for us to know and understand. Yeah, and something that I, I started doing last year when we were working with all these different teams with different work styles was we did a lot of sort of user story mapping sessions and goal grooming sessions to get everybody on the same page and get both product and tech leads from each team in the room so we could identify all of the gaps. So even if they actually implement the work in very different ways, either using Kanban, Agile, some teams use like contractors to do a lot of work, so they have to write more detailed requirements ahead of time. Trying to get everybody in the same room and do like user story mapping to make sure we all understand at a high level how things are going to get built. How iteratively are you working and how iteratively are you releasing code right, and, and update, uh, updating a product? Are, are you doing it? Are you doing it continuously? Continuous deployment. Okay, yes. that's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All uh, the time. How long have you guys been doing that? Because most organizations and most companies are just now sort of experimenting with that. Yeah. yeah, so we are just experimenting with it. Not all of the teams do it, I'd say. We're going from sprints, like two-week sprints, and doing releases uh, based on a sprint to more of a continuous deployment model. But I'd say even when we were doing sprints, we... We like uh, pushing things in, sort of even in the middle of the sprint. Yeah. So I think uh, continuous deployment for some of our products, especially the more UI-focused ones where we have changes that sort of we want to make immediately or we can just push it out. What are you mostly getting wrong right now? What are some of the biggest challenges that, that when, when, when you guys go out and have a beer after work and you say, geez, if we could just fix this piece, what are, what are a couple of those areas that you would that you'd want to wave a magic wand and fix if you could? Yeah, I think probably the most well-talked about and well-discussed um, known issue with Klarna was 
approaching how products are launched in markets outside of Sweden. I think you had a question in your little list of questions around, you know, what was the challenge um, launching established products in a different country in the U.S.? And that's one of the things that the management at Klarna has recognized that they maybe didn't do as well as they could have. And so it's... So, what is it, so stop there. So what mm-hmm. does that mean? Did you take products that were outside of the U.S. and just put a wrapper or a new skin on them and, and sort of hoping that they were going to work here? So looking at products that were already launched in um, Sweden and in the Nordics that were working really well. And, you know, the mindset was, well, it works really good here. It's going to work great everywhere else, including the U.S. And, um, you know, launching that product in the U.S. with, with minimal changes or consideration of how well it would be received um, in the U.S. market. And then now, you know, I think we've realized and I think, you know, management has really realized and taken back the feedback from the U.S. market, from the U.K. market, from the German market that, hey, this is really challenging and it's really hard to sell for us. We are having we have all this great feedback from our merchants. This is what we're seeing. This is how we can tweak it just a little bit to make it better here. They're realizing that. And we actually just started a new part of the, the the product organization focusing on global product and making sure that we have, uh, so the U.S. market was really the first market that was launched where they had a product team in the U.S. market. The other markets they launched with no product teams and they just worked everything out of Stockholm. So now they're realizing we had a little bit more success in the U.S. We saw the problems faster. We, we addressed them quicker. So now we're launching a more global focused group around um, like global product and and setting up product teams within each of the individual markets to address how things are being tweaked or changed to meet those markets needs specifically. So are you uh, are you going to have product teams that are that are product aligned but also geographically aligned right to to build new products and maintain existing products within a particular geographic market. Yeah, so the idea would be to have a Rachel in every market or a Jeff in every market based on that market's needs. I mean, clearly, um, you know, Netherlands is a country we support. Um, It rolls into the dock market. They're not going to have a full staff product team in the Netherlands because it's just not big enough. There's just not enough demand there. So, you know, making sure they're aligning it smartly, but yet have make sure that that vision and the feedback from the individual markets is making its way back up through the product organization and the products and changing the products to be able to adjust to the needs of those individual markets. Hey, Ryan, I got a question here. Yeah, go ahead. Steve, don't interrupt my flow, man. (laughs) Sorry. So when you're you're going through this process here, um, how do you balance everyone's time so that it doesn't become too tilted towards new features and functionalities as opposed to getting everyday work done? Do we? No. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think you might have just stru- you know struck another challenge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, really, like, let's be honest. That's a challenge in every organization, right? Like, how do you balance somebody's times? And I think it really drives back to ensuring, making sure that a resources a resources time is spent on what is necessary to meet those OKRs at the end of the day. Um, we really do drive out towards those and, and ensure you know that the that the top priorities of the organization are what we're spending our time 
you know, ensuring that we're doing that. And, and you know, sometimes, trust me, in my role, it, sometimes it really sucks when I have to look at a market and say, I know you have five merchants waiting on this and you need this today to hit your goals for the month, but I can't do it. So, you know, and it sometimes feels like I'm playing favorites with the US and UK because what some of the products we're launching are so focused for the US and UK right now. But it's what is the, you know, the primary goals for the organization right now and, and that's where our focus needs to be. And I'd say at every monthly all hands we have, they show the top five things in delivery. They said, this is your primary focus. If you find that you can't achieve what you need to do for these, then you need to tell your manager. Yeah. So everybody, I mean, service center, fraud agents, office managers, everybody hears that. So. How do you deal with it? You talked a little bit about regulation before. Um, you're you're in, in a very sensitive space. How do you deal with and react to changes in regulations and security and privacy it, when you're in flight with a product? Mm -hmm. um, do you react quickly enough to incorporate those impacts during production? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I talk to legal all the time, legal and compliance, uh, especially launching credit. I meet with them probably weekly, if not multiple times a week. And we're constantly making changes to the UI on disclosures on required fields and we're constantly reviewing it. We have a really great legal team and we have a legal team that's very business focused and they're willing to bring in like external counsel as needed to get really quick, fast turnaround on legal opinions. So they were involved at the beginning when we were doing requirements gathering. We had workshops where we had people globally go to one place where we basically just did a legal review on every aspect of the product. So not just the UI but also interest rate calculations, there's this technical limitation that might impact when we can deliver a statement or not, like what do we have to do, and getting all of the teams aware of what needs to happen. Uh, we also have, our legal team has everybody in the U.S. and who's working with the U.S. do training on certain laws. So uh, we have training on like what the UI needs to look like, what you can say, what you can't say, and just some basic rules so everybody has the knowledge and is aware of the constraints. For your lines of credit, are you establishing your own banks in each market or are you using third-party banking? So in the U.S., we're using a third-party bank. In the EU, we, have, we don't have our full banking license in the EU, but we have some type of license that allows us to issue credit in the EU. So we'll see what happens with Brexit. I was just going to ask that. Do you, get, yeah. do you guys have any sense of what the impact of Brexit is going to be for you guys? No, I don't think that they fully know. I mean, there's like a team that's assessing the risks, but they haven't really, they haven't executed Article 50 yet. They haven't started their process of leaving. I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen, but I think they're starting to explore third-party options. But yeah, I was in London sort of the day before the vote, and I think we were all pretty surprised. So we're still working on launching our credit products in the UK in two weeks. I think we'll be fine for probably a year, but we'll have to see what happens after that. Yeah, Brian. Um, I'm a software development manager, and um, I know a lot of my job is successful by the tightly coupling of product managers and software development managers. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had a number of conversations with the folks in engineering over in Sweden. Just curious how you guys think it's working with some of you not being in Stockholm, working with these development teams over in Sweden. And if you think maybe some of the success that you're finding there could help influence us bringing some technology people to Columbus someday. 
I think it'd be great to have engineers in Columbus. We do have a couple of engineers in the office uh, here in the US focused on more of the market-facing UI-specific components, and it's been great because we work in the same time zone, we can sit next to each other, we can work together. So I think that's been really good, and I think, you know, we've been, I guess, in the US for like 20 months now, and the organization in Stockholm is starting to think about decentralizing a little bit. Now it is sort of, you know, I have to work with the product manager who works with the engineering team, and I work with the engineering teams directly. But yeah, I think it'd be great if some of the teams that do have market-specific focus, as we get bigger, we bring more engineers over here or hire, you know, within the local market. Sounds good. I would keep emphasizing that to Bernie Miles. I've talked to him a few times. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to make sure that we bring it to Columbus someday. That'd be All great. Right. Yeah, keep talking to Bernie. <laughs> How did you guys end up at Klarna? So I was recruited by Mr. Tuttle. Um, I had worked with him in the past. <laughs> and... Um, knew my history, knew what I did, so just thought this would be a good fit. When he approached me, I honestly thought, no, not interested. <laughs> and then I sat down and talked to everybody, um, met the people at Klarna, met the other, um, met the team, went in, saw the office, and realized that it maybe was outside of my norm. I'm probably more comfortable in your role as a development manager. Um, but what I do is I do develop the integration of products with platforms. So it is still fairly technical in terms of a technical management. And so decided I should take the risk. Yeah, so I have a very strange story, but I was in the Bay Area for a while. I used to be a data scientist, and I was doing data science consulting for a while. Bay Area was too expensive. The commute was too long, so me and my husband wanted to leave the Bay Area, so did some analytics and came up with a list of underrated, highly valued cities, so are great you, value. Are you shitting us right now? No, I'm not. I'm not, so... Because this is, this is like a poster child sort <laughs> no, of, you know... I'm, right, I'm just going yeah, to... I need so. to call the chamber in 2020. Yeah, so we did, like, me and my husband did a ranking of features of a city. We just did a weighted average, sort of. Did We said, okay, well, we moved to the Bay Area thinking it would be great. Clearly, our emotionally driven decision that led us there, we're not so happy with the quality of life. So let's use numbers and let's try to just think outside the box. Like, no commitment to it. But then we found that the cities in the Rust Belt and this area of the country, Great Lakes area, were great, top of the list of everything, super affordable. So we rented a car in Pittsburgh. I could keep my job since I was doing consulting. So my husband basically interviewed everywhere. We did Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Columbus, Detroit, Ann Arbor. He looked at his job offers. We looked at the cities and we just decided to move here. So then we moved here. Six months later after we settled, I thought, okay, let's find a local job so I don't have to travel Monday through Thursday. And I found Klarna. Wow, great story. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. How'd you come here? So I was also recruited by uh, Luke Tuttle. Um, I come from an advertising background, uh, doing design and marketing and more front-end front development. Um, so Luke was looking for somebody that could kind of be cross-team, willing to wear several different hats. Um, so last year when I, when I came on board, um, we were very much growing, and, and it was like a startup company at the time. Um, at least as far as the U.S. Uh, division. So I think there were only like 20 employees at the time, and I was just doing any, you know, anything and everything from, from day to day. 
And Jeff relocated from Cleveland, so Connor yes. is bringing people to Columbus. <laughs> um, so, and you seem sort of you you you, and you guys obviously haven't shared these stories because you seem surprised by Jeff's story. At least, oh, no, I knew. oh okay, because <laughs> Melissa seemed to be like, yeah, tell us tell us about you, Jeff. <laughs> You were just, you were just checking to see if he was going to tell the truth. Okay. Yeah. So if you guys are struggling with product adoption, how do you determine whether it's because there needs to be iterations or if the product just needs more exposure because it's so disruptive and people just don't understand it? Yeah. So I think we do, we did a lot of customer service sort of call outs, calling people who had used the product calling people who had complained. A lot of the complaints that we had were really driven on people not understanding it. And we also talked to a lot of the merchants who do their own sort of CSAT surveys and they had reasons. So I think a lot of the, a lot of, it was hard to do user testing for people who hadn't really used the products before. And we had a pretty small set of customers who had used it. So we reached out to them and found out. And it was really people just not understanding the product. So something that we've invested a lot in just very recently is marketing. So we're gonna be launching a lot more campaigns in the US, doing a lot more marketing, a lot more upstream marketing with our merchants. Um, I think as far as you know, checking out with your credit card, that's fine. Pay after delivery is hard because we don't have an invoice model in the US. And then when we were launching the credit products, based on that experience from pay after delivery and people not getting it, we really pushed back pretty hard on Stockholm in the way that they wanted to present it. We really want to start with presenting it in a way that people understand that are common market terms that people are familiar with and designing the product in a way that people, people know and they have a reference point for, which I think was part of the problem with pay after delivery was it was too new and people didn't really quite understand it and didn't feel comfortable with it. Yeah, I would also just add to that. We were very fortunate to have um, a couple bigger merchants that were really willing to work with us and provide feedback. And they were engaged. Um, and, you know, we brought people over from Stockholm to talk to them directly. And those were some of the, I think those provided some of the aha moments, like them sitting in those meetings with our merchants and saying, oh, okay, we, we're starting to get it. Yeah. How do you balance customer feedback, either from end users or from merchants, with your own objectives, your own desires for the product, and where you want to take the business? I mean, the customer is always right, right? <laughs> Until they're not. Yeah. yeah. So we do, uh, we do a lot more requesting customer feedback, a lot more user testing, a lot more A-B testing now than we did when we first launched in the U.S. And I don't think we have a really formal way of how we're incorporating that other than just starting the conversation. And when we're doing requirements or talking about changing something, that's just another facet of the conversation that we have. But we don't have like a really formalized way of incorporating that feedback. We have some people working on doing more of a you know, user testing framework and doing, improving our A-B testing process a little bit and how we use that data and feed it back into product. So we're thinking about it, but I don't think we have a good way other than we're just introducing more of that into the conversation now. Yeah, and I do think, you know, if a merchant or a consumer's um, goal doesn't align with where our product is, um, we're really trying to, with the A-B testing and the, the analytics that we can capture off of checkout, trying to show them the use case of why our decision was made and why we choose to go certain, certain directions. 
And, you know, in, in my area, even um, like integrating with platforms, um, we've, we've had platforms tell us they don't want to do it the way we do it. But we really sometimes have to drive out like why we've made this decision and why our product works this way and showing them some of the uh, legal issues and compliance issues that they'd be opening themselves up to if we chose to do it their way. And either sometimes that, that comes down to, okay, we'll implement it that way. And so sometimes you just, you just scare the shit out of them. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. But sometimes it, it means the relationship ends, unfortunately. So I had a question too. Yeah, go ahead, David. Um, when it comes to discovery and validating your hypotheses, do you guys have a process or how do you normally go about validating your, the, doing the discovery work and validating these hypotheses and setting them and yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of it just really comes down to a cost-benefit analysis. So, like, what teams are involved? How long, just at a high level, like, swagging, do you think it would take? What's the addressable market? Is this for a single market? Is it for multiple markets? And just sort of making a decision on, do we do this and do we do this now? Given everything else, if your top three things you want to work on all involve the same team, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense to do right now, maybe you have to do it later. So I think it's just... You know, there's not a formal way of doing it, but at the end of the day, the decision's usually on a cost-benefit analysis. Do you apply the same process to new things as well as enhancements and, and yep. maintenance to existing products? Yes. Or new, new, new features? Yep. Yeah, probably not just ongoing operations, but enhancements, definitely. So we have some things that are in delivery right now that are just sort of general improvements, like grouping general improvements together, technical debt for certain microservices, just to give them dedicated time to focus on it and get it prioritized. So technical debt's become a popular topic. Uh, do you guys think you're dealing with it effectively? And do you, do you deal with it any differently than dealing with a new piece of, piece of functionality in a, in a new project? Or do you take it through the same process of vetting whether now is the right time to deal with technical debt around a particular issue or product? Yeah, I think it's the same process. I mean, sometimes we know that we're creating technical debt when we take certain shortcuts to get something to market, but that's just something that you have to do sometimes. And then we just make sure to, you know, in JIRA, like in somewhere else, just sort of keep track of the things we know we need to come back to. And some things, you know, they're there and it's annoying, but you can wait a little bit to deal with it. And I think we just try to take in the same process. How do you approach, how do you approach testing? Um, are you testing iteratively? Yeah, I'm assuming since you're, you're, you're deploying continuously that you've got testing sort of embedded in the process. Yeah. And are de developers doing a lot of their own testing? Or do you have testers. a testing? Yeah, okay. we have testers who are embedded in the different product teams. So sometimes some of the teams get a little strapped for time and they don't have a lot of time to do the amount of testing that we need. And there was an issue with in the U.S. market, there was a particular service that had a lot of testing that needed to be done. So I brought in like a consulting firm, third party testing service to kind of give some extra hands for a period of three months. It's not something that the organization normally does, but they really liked it. And I think I come from a consulting background, so I'm comfortable with that. But a lot of times it's hard to bring in third parties, but we really needed it for this particular initiative because we were releasing a lot at once and it wasn't ongoing. So I thought it made sense to bring in consulting firm to do it. It sounds like that you fundamentally want to approach shipping and getting the product out as a higher priority than having it be perfect. 
Yes. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yes. Yeah. And has that served you relatively well to be able to get products out quickly and be in alignment with the business objectives? Yeah, I think it has. Because a lot of it, especially in launching new markets, like we don't know until it's out there. And, you know, if we feel like we have a good enough product, I mean, I think the things that we had on the list of improvements might even go out the window once we get feedback from customers. So I think really releasing an MVP and being comfortable that what we think is the minimal set works and sort of figuring out the rest as we go has served us pretty well. Do you, as the company grows, do you think you'll stay with that approach and mentality that you'll stay with that sort of MVP, let's get something out that, that's, that's, that minimally meets the need and then we'll iterate on top of that? Or do you think as the company grows and gets bigger that, because that's typically what happens, yeah. right? As a, as, as a company gets bigger, they become less likely to issue MVT, MVP type products and they begin to issue bigger iterations of products. So I think, yeah, I think it'll be mixed. I think once we launch some of the products that we have, there'll just be more work that's needed to maintain it and to add functionality to it because we're launching some really big products right now. So I think for sort of products that are already live, I imagine that we won't sort of be as fast and loose with just like launching things, but we do have sort of a special projects team within product to kind of keep that nimbleness that kind of just go off and build MVP style things that then grow into more managed projects. So I think there'll probably be sort of managed sort of disruptive groups. And then I imagine as we, we're already getting to that point where we're getting pretty big and the products that we're launching are pretty big that it's hard to imagine that that sort of MVP mentality will persist. Any final questions for the Klarna product group? Anything you guys would want them to know that we haven't talked about as part of what you guys do and how you approach product? No, go uh, on shoes.com and make a purchase. We're <laughs> over sack. And we have some stickers on the table if you want any. Thanks guys, please help me thank them for coming and joining us. Thanks for listening to the Product Camp Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more product insights and expertise. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Until next time, remember, great products matter.